Hey, it's Leah. Before we start this episode, I just wanted to tell you about this other show called Stuff the British Stole. It's from CBC Podcast and Australia Radio National, and it's got all the story elements I love. It's got colonial theft. It's got museums denying that theft. It's got intrigue. It's got jokes by Australians. Join host Mark Fresnel as he picks one artifact and takes you on the wild, evocative, sometimes funny, and often tragic adventure of how it got to where it is today. Check it out on the same thing that you're listening to this on or on CBC Listen. This is a CBC Podcast. Hey listeners, we have a special bonus for you today. It's the first episode of a brand new series from CBC Podcast called Cooper Island. Long after the Cooper Island Residential School was torn down, the survivors are still haunted by what happened there. Longtime CBC reporter, radio host, and investigative journalist Duncan McHugh exposes buried police investigations, confronts perpetuators of abuse, and witnesses a community trying to rebuild, literally on top of the old school's ruins and unmarked graves of Indigenous children. We have the first episode for you here today. It's called A School They Called Alcatraz. Have a listen. Before we start, this is a podcast about Canada's Indian residential schools, and it contains descriptions of sexual violence, suicide, and abuse. If you need support, you can find information about where to turn for help at cbc.ca slash Cooper Island. Bonjour, Ankodans Indigenakas, Anishinaabe Dabajimo Indau. I'm Duncan McHugh. I'm a journalist, an Indigenous journalist. I'm doing a podcast about Indian residential schools. And if Canada had had its way, I wouldn't be here. Because the whole point of creating a network of church-run, state-funded boarding schools that operated for over a century in Canada was to get rid of people like me. To eradicate, assimilate, kill the Indian in the child. But I'm here. My ancestors went through a lot to get me here. So, let me tell you a story. It's good to be here finally. Oh, yeah. I was wondering if you were going to make it. I kept looking at the time and I was thinking, oh, maybe they're lost. <laughs> we were we were kind of running on Indian time. Sorry. Oh, no, no such thing. <laughs> it starts for me in the driveway of Jill Harris. I've heard a lot of stories about residential schools over the years, but she told me one over the phone that made the hairs on my neck stand up. Well, come on in. Thank you. All Thank right. you. Miigwech. She's a short native grandma with long silvering hair. <laughs> How many cats do you have? Probably about about ten or eleven in 10 the or house. Ten or eleven cats. I'll try yeah. to I'll try to pretend that I'm not allergic to cats. <laughs> oh, are you? I am. Ah, <laughs> uh, that's okay. <laughs> Look okay. at them; they're lying all over the place. Holy Jill is the former chief of Penelicut, a Hulkamina community on an isolated island off the coast of British Columbia. It's where the Cooper Island Residential School once stood. So just to give you a little bit of background on on what I'm doing with the residential school search for missing children is, um, um, well, I'm working with... We sit down at our kitchen table, and then Jill starts to tell me about a day when she was chief, like 20 years ago, when an elder came to see her at the band office. She was very concerned that there were people being bothered by, um, like, apparitions of children or hearing children or being haunted, sort of, by the children. She was afraid that there was somebody who was going to be hurt or we were going to have trouble. 
She said we needed to do some work. We needed to find out why the children were appearing to people or why they were calling for help. What went through your head when she came to you? Well, um, I, I believe in, in what she was talking about, like uh, ghosts. <laughs> um, so That little laugh there, I think it's because ghosts isn't the perfect word for what Jill's describing. To people at Penelicate, the spirits of the dead are powerful. You don't mess with them. And they started bothering people not long after the Cooper Island School closed in 1975. We had uh, demolished the school and um, were beginning to do some development around there. So um, my thought was they were afraid. And so they were reaching out because some people were saying that they could feel like being touched, like physically touched. Touched on their shoulder. Mm -hmm. Um, They could sense that there were... um, uh, like appearances, um, children looking in their windows, the windows of the houses, and um, people could hear crying and some like hollering, and um, there was also some laughter, but mainly it was um, it was that anguish, I guess, of um, the spirits. Did you think it was haunted? Um, I think there was a disturbance. It's not so much um, a haunting as as a presence. You know, they were scared. We we needed to let them know that we were here to help them. If you're Indigenous, I don't need to tell you how Cooper Island and all the other residential schools were like bombs in our families. This podcast bears witness to a lot of the stuff you've lived, maybe in silence. And trust me, we're going to name some names. For those of you who aren't Indigenous, even if you think you know how bad it was, you may have only heard a sanitized version of events. But recently, the buried truths of residential schools got a lot harder to ignore. There's been yet another discovery of unmarked graves at a former residential school in B.C. Neighboring First Nations communities found out about the grim discovery in a newsletter posted online on Monday morning. The Penelicut tribe says it has found more than 160 unmarked graves in an area near the former Cooper Island. This is a story about a so-called school that is so notorious it's been called Canada's Alcatraz. It's about three children who survived and one boy who didn't. It's about families trying to heal and a community that says it's time everyone knows what really happened at Cooper Island. It's like a Stephen King book. It's like a bad dream that will never go away. I have never seen such abject fear as what I saw in that child. And I have never seen such abject evil as what was in that man. Psychopaths and sociopaths raise children in a confined space. And that has everything to do with why children are missing and murdered. The clandestine burials are clandestine for a reason. The people who do the burying don't want anybody else to know about them. This is Cooper Island. Episode 1, 
a school they called Alcatraz. I'm winding down the Vancouver Island Highway with my producer, Jody Martinson. So we should be coming up to it very shortly here. A little, little zigzag and then on our left. Okay. Wow. Good morning, Sailor Sea. I, the the, the sun, sunrise is really lovely. As we're trying to find the ferry terminal here. I lived in BC for years, but the largeness of everything here still blows me away. Think towering cedar trees and orca whales. These are the traditional lands of the Penelicate tribe, part of a larger group known as the Hulkaminum or Coast Salish peoples. Morning. Morning. Uh, two for Penelicate. Okay. How long does it take to get over? Penelicate is a Hulkaminum word. It was the original name for the island. But then British settlers renamed it after a naval officer, Captain Cooper. Then in 1889, they plunked a school down in the middle of the island, named after the same guy. Generations of Hulkaminum children were forced to go there. This is an important safety announcement. All ferry crew members are certified by Transport Canada Marine Safety to deal with emergency situations. Those kids made their way through the choppy waters of the Salish Sea like we're doing now, but they huddled in a tiny boat, probably crying for their parents, not knowing where they were going or for how long. A lot of them never came home. Who died? How did they die? Where are they buried? And why have their graves gone unmarked for so long? The Canadian government and the Catholic Church have never properly answered those questions. As we roll off the ferry, the high school kids are lined up, waiting to leave the island. And it's like a walk up the hill, waving at everybody you know in the lineup to leave the island, except for us. <laughs> yeah, they even waved at us. Yeah, they're all teenagers. It's the obligatory teenage hoodie. Island life. <laughs> Swaving in the lineup at each other. <laughs> Everybody's smiling as they're getting on the ferry. The other ones are getting off. Whoever is in front of us is very popular. I spot the fellow we've come to see walking off the ferry. Raymond Tony Charlie. He goes by Tony. Jody hops out to walk up the hill with him. It's a pretty typical rainy day. It is. But I know the river is real low right now. The salmon are going to come up pretty soon, so we need the rain. Eh? Yeah. yeah, I caught that ferry for 27 years. Coming to work every day. <laughs> Tony was the social services manager for the Penelicate tribe. He's retired now and in his early 70s. He's a survivor of the Cooper Island School and a little wobbly on his feet. At the top of the hill, we meet up with Tony's younger brother, James, also a survivor. He's standing by a beat-up F-150 truck. Is this your truck? Yeah, no wood truck. XTR. I like the engine. I had a 350 in that. A Chevy Silverado? Yeah. 
that drift was hard and gas compared to this, yeah. this engine. James is kind of a man's man. His home is just a few minutes' drive from where we're standing on the other side of the island. Because he lives here, the school grounds are simultaneously no big deal and a minefield of childhood memories. You pass it so many times, and you covered it up. It's just like a, it's a scar that skin grew over to heal it. That wound, eh? A scar is there. But that scar takes place of the injury. The community tore the school building to pieces in 1980, then burned it to the ground. But James and Tony have agreed to show me around the old site. I don't know if those steps are still here yet. Are they concrete oh, steps? Oh, wow. Yeah, concrete, yeah. Yeah, there's still some steps here, right here from the residential school. Wow, these, right so, so yeah. this is, this, these are the steps to go up to the school? Straight yeah. up to the front, yeah. The cement stairs are now overgrown with moss, but they lead to a long wooden wharf that still runs out to the sea. This is where the boats used to unload hundreds and hundreds of children from Hulkaminum communities up and down the coast. I remember coming off the ramp, walking off on the, the ramp down and up to the ferry, and it was very, um, very different. We had to uh, get off the ferry and we walked up the steps here. Right at the top would have been the entrance. But I was looking at this big red brick building, eh? And I was just in awe. What the heck is this ugly building doing here right in the middle of nowhere? Because it's the only kind of building you see in the city. At the time, we didn't know what we were getting into. We didn't know what was in store for us. We didn't have a clue. They were looking at a Gothic cathedral-like institution. It was three stories tall, and it had a bell tower and a large white cross. It was always manicured. The lawns were always mowed, and all the, the hedges, were yeah, hedges were all trimmed. It was a beautiful-looking place. But looks don't mean nothing. The flowering azaleas, fruit trees, and man-made ponds were an attempt to impose order on what settlers considered an unruly wilderness. But the facade was hiding all kinds of ugliness. So just on the right there uh, is where the, that uh, incinerator was. It was basically a, a fuel tank. They cut it in half and they utilized part that part for put burning all the cardboard and the wood refuse from the school. I had one of my friends brought me here when I started day school, showed me this steel drum that was here, the incinerator. And he was saying, this is where they they burn all the little children, the little babies that were born. They were thrown into the incinerator and they were um, burnt there. So, Did, Are those stories that you had heard as well, James? Or? Oh, yeah. I guess it, the nuns were quite experienced at recognizing the signs of her pregnancy and whatever, and they would have the child aborted and, and disposed of. Hmm very unhealthy manner. Hmm. Yeah. I was very young, but I was just in awe, like, you know, it, it, it's just unbelievable to hear because who would do that to a baby? 
so that always stays in my mind because of the way he told me his body language and his voice. You know, because uh, the voice was real, the expression, all the words were real. And it's a fact, and it's something that he knew, and something that he wanted to share with me. Mm-hmm. So, but it, it, it's it's so hard to believe, you know, anybody can do that to a little baby. I think that's pretty difficult to to prove. That's one of the things is. Uh, it, it seems like we always will hear the stories. Even today, we'll hear stories from other survivors. Uh, and I hear them about what happened to them or what they were involved in. Eh? So, about here. They've whispered these horrific stories to each other for years. Survivors from other schools told the Truth and Reconciliation Commission the same thing about fetuses and babies thrown into furnaces. You said, I mean, that's that's a that's a really disturbing story. It is, it is, but it's it's a it's a true fact of life for the Virginia schools, the Catholic school that knows on this island. That's a true story. It's it's not, it's not a fabricated story. It's not a made up story. It's not a hearsay story. That is the truth. And, um, you, you kind of just acknowledge that. You, like, you, you were, like, proving it might be hard. Part of it is uh, the way of our people is um, it's a vocal history that uh, we always have learned from because the words were shared over and over and over. It seems like they were repeated, but that becomes implanted in your mind. It becomes implanted in you, so... We keep walking past a line of gangly and twisted apple trees, remnants of the old orchards that once spread out all around the school. We stop in front of a couple of new houses. Yeah. There was a fence along here, along the field here. Well, when I was walking with him, he stopped here and he pointed me to the tree that was here, old apple tree. They were great big apples, eh? And he said, well... This is where they put some of the babies underground. They were buried here under the tree. And that's what he told me, you know. Uh, buried under the tree, the apple tree. So, still very difficult. I can't imagine what it would be like for a child to hear that kind of thing. His stories would be dismissed as hearsay in journalism or law. But these secrets shared between children seem too evil for children to imagine. And the stories persist, passed down generations, truths that refuse to stay buried. I just wanted to take a break to tell you about another CBC podcast I think you might like. It's called Death in Cryptoland. It's a true story about a crypto tycoon, his secret past, his sudden demise, and an online sleuth's obsession to unravel the truth behind his mysterious company. You can check it out on the same thing that you're listening to this on or on CBC Listen.
As we walk along, I can't get over how much community life in the here and now happens on top of the old site of the Cooper Island Residential School. For survivors, potential triggers lie in every direction. This road was not here when we were going to school here. The, what we're standing on yeah. right now was the school grounds? Yeah. So this road is as new as a new road. Okay. Yeah. So, so where... Community members line up for the ferry here. There are new buildings everywhere. An adult ed center, a daycare, a longhouse where they meet for ceremonies. All built where the old school used to be. I mean, the community has now grown up around the site, right? Mm. What's it like for you to walk through here? To me, it's very disturbing. It's a very disturbing thing. All the atrocities, the, the hurt, the sorrows that was in this ground, eh? There's got to be some good, good, healthy spirits brought back to these lands because these lands all hold a lot of pain right now. They hold a lot of bad memories. Back when James was the tribe's health director, there were two rooms in the health center that were perpetually cold. Didn't matter how high they turned up the thermostat. The two rooms there, there were always weird things going on and the people would get chilled and, and those two rooms would never heat up. The band called in technicians to check the vents. Everything seemed okay. They analyzed the walls with radar guns, nothing. No one could explain why it was always so chilly. Here's what James and everyone else knew, though. Those two rooms were built on top of what used to be the girls' side of the school. Why in the heat going in that room? It's unexplained. Uh, the doctors and nurses that we had in them always felt a presence in there. Kind of weird things always happened in those rooms. Little, little things, things dropping off the counter and onto the floor. So we always lived with those things, eh? Before they called it a sensation, they would call it an experience. But they still won't come out and say, a ghost being. The Western world never talks like that, eh? James is struggling to describe these ghosts, just like Jill Harris, the former chief, was. Jill said haunted isn't the right word to explain the restlessness of the spirits. But Penelicate residents weren't the only ones feeling unsettled by it all. Jill said every winter, invites would go out calling Hulkaminum people from far and wide to the ceremonial dances. But lots of them wouldn't come. Because to get to the longhouse where the dances are held, you have to pass by where the residential school used to stand. Well... People knew why people were not ex uh, accepting the invitation. They had such bad memories about what happened there. Um, so people just kind of understood that they were, why they weren't coming to accept an invitation to a big dance. Because of, even though you'd torn the building down, the school was still part of the landscape. The school was still part of the landscape. There was stuff still buried under the ground that was a part of the, the, the school. Their memory was so strong about what had happened there that um, it, was, it was still real. <laughs> Why did they keep building there then? Jill says they didn't have a choice. The community was growing and needed housing. 
The government, specifically the Department of Indian Affairs, gave them no alternative but to develop the old school grounds. There is more land where the development could happen, but it's just like when when you're talking to Indian Affairs and they're saying there's already water there, there's already, you know, it's already been... Cleared. Cleared there, so that's the best place to have it. So that's that's where housing development took place. Penelicate was trying its best to move forward, but how could they when the landscape was littered with such awful memories? So a long time before anyone else was really paying attention to hidden graves at residential schools, the community took matters into its own hands and turned to technology. And there was a a maple tree there in the corner of the girl's side, and that's where they found one of the babies born that was buried there, eh? When they're doing the ground scanning. Ground-penetrating radar. Penelicate started to work with a team of archaeologists about eight years ago. They wanted to dig foundations without worrying about disturbing unmarked burials. And they wanted to piece together what happened to the children who never made it home. When the radar started locating graves, some marked, some not, it brought all the pain back up to the surface of how the school had devastated families. Well, just over here on the right, um, just where the little trees are, just back that way about 50 feet where this sign is is that they had that uh they call that uh, the wire mesh and it was around the whole school grounds and a lot of the people when they came to the island they weren't allowed to go inside there to see their children eh for james and tony the cooper island school was a generational curse their mother was sent there in the 1930s james Tony, and four of their brothers and sisters in the 1960s. They weren't allowed to care for each other or bond. No, we never saw them at all. All our activities were separate from each other, our schedules, so we never would join. Just that movie night once in a while, every two, three months you'd have a movie, eh? They, They kept us separate. They did a damn good job of separating us, family. And even brothers that lived, or that were in the boys' boarding dormitories, they made sure they kept us separated. You guys weren't that much different in age. You're only, what, two years? Fourteen months, Four- yeah. Fourteen months, but then you hardly saw each other yeah, at all. Tony was a senior and I was an intermediate. So then you, I was on the second floor. Tony was on a different floor for me. Floor, yeah, top. Junior, junior boys on the top floor, so those those floors did not mingle that activities, different times activities for them. Why did they do that? Uh, just destroy family, destroy fa- the unity of a family. That's exactly why Canada's first Prime Minister, John A. Macdonald, created residential schools to separate children from their, quote, savage parents. It was an all-out war on Indigenous families. In many ways it worked, and when their mother was murdered on the streets of Seattle, they ended up orphans. I guess deep down, mm-hmm. I'm not close to my two of my sisters, or one of my younger brother. 
that some of our values and relationships were really broken down good day by the residential school and uh it's something that I don't know if it could ever be repaired, eh? I, you just put your hand on, on James's back. Yeah. I noticed that. And, and despite what you guys went through at the school, you are close. I can see that. You're, 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 but you said you had to, you've had to work hard at that. Yeah, because we, we didn't have parents. We had each other. Mm. And they couldn't destroy that with me to only half. What we have is our love and survival. Tony and James survived. A lot of children didn't. The National Center for Truth and Reconciliation's latest count for the number of children who died at Canada's residential schools is 4,108 and counting. We'll never know much about most of them. We won't know what those kids wanted to be when they grew up. We won't hear about their dreams. But there's one boy who died at Cooper Island who James and Tony and others want us to know about. Their classmate Richard. Partly because he was a really kind and gentle kid, a lot of people told us that. But they also can't forget him because the way he died was so disturbing. It marked an entire generation of survivors. Over 50 years later, they still whisper about what they think happened to him. The mystery of his death is one of the big question marks that keeps the community hurting. And where he died is yet one more place community members pass by every day. The gymnasium was here and left right here up on this little hill here. It was an old barn they converted into the gymnasium for the school. And that's where the young fella hung himself, eh? They said that uh, he hung himself because his parents were fighting at home and he wished that, that he could have a Christian family that would be forever happy. And they said uh, he underlined many pa- passages in the Bible this is how his parents should be, which is totally wrong, a total lie. That's what they told you? Yeah. Yeah. On upcoming episodes of Cooper Island, we find out more about the day Richard died and why some consider the official story a lie. Some of the um, Catholic nuns and brothers took the children up there to view the body. They, they um, took kids to see the body? Yes, they had to go up and look at the, yeah. We meet Richard's sister, Belvie, who can't forget her last phone conversation with her brother. We're just talking, and then all of a sudden he says, you know what, sis, I can't wait to get out of this hellhole. When I get out of here, I'm going to tell everything. And that was the last time we heard from him. And we learn more about what life was really like on the boys' side and the terrifying secrets the children were forced to keep. You could hear the, the bed squeaking all over the dormitory, but everybody pretended they were sleeping. The next morning, the poor guy could hardly walk, but nobody said nothing because it, it could be their turn tonight. Cooper Island is produced by Martha Troyan and Jody Martinson and hosted by me, Duncan McHugh. 
Our senior producer is Jeff Turner. Our coordinating producer is Roshni Nair. Mixed by Michael Catano and Lee Rosevier. And Arif Nurani as the director of CBC Podcasts. Theme music by Zibiwan. Art by Elliot Whitehill. Heichka Jimigwich to the Penelicate Elders Committee, Jill Harris, James and Raymond Tony Charlie, Bobby Sam, Steve Sweetheld, and we raise our hands to Mike Charlie for all his help. He passed away before we got to air. If you need support, you can access emotional and crisis referral services by calling the 24-hour National Indian Residential School Crisis Line, 1-866-925-4419. Or for more resources on Canada's Indian Residential Schools, go to our website, cbc.ca slash Island. And if you like this episode, please help others find it by rating and reviewing us. Miigwech bezindayik. Thanks for listening. That was the first episode of the brand new series, Cooper Island. You can listen to more on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.